Welcome to the Longevity Week podcast, hosted by the Longevity Forum. We'll be featuring podcasts all week on the theme, The Age of Resilience, which you can catch online, thelongevityforum.com. Today, David Collinson, one of the founding team at the Pension Corporation, will be interviewing Stuart McDonald on the impact of COVID on mortality. Now to you, David. Thank you very much, Laura, and it's great to be here and to introduce Stuart MacDonald, who is Head of Demographic Assumptions and Methodology for the Lloyds Banking Group. Stuart's team are responsible for setting assumptions about all aspects of policyholder health and behaviour, including, obviously, most importantly, mortality. Stuart joined Lloyds a few years ago and uh, built the team that launched Scottish Widows' uh, entry into the bulk annuity market. Previous to that, he had held a variety of commercial and technical roles, including leading the longevity reinsurance pricing team at Munich Re and previously building longevity risk models at Canada Life. Stuart, how would you summarise the overall impact of COVID on mortality in 2020? Uh, Hi, David. Um, Really good to have this opportunity to share my thoughts with you and with uh, Longevity Week. So, mortality in the first quarter of, of 2020 was incredibly light. I think it's important to set that scene. It closely tracked 2019, which was actually the best year ever for mortality. That's really not saying as much as it sounds. Uh, we, we hope that when mortality is improving, that most years are the best year ever. Uh, but 2019 certainly was. And as I say, 2020 was following that quite closely for the first three months. Then Of course, we saw we've all become very familiar with the breathtaking graphs uh, and the remarkable impact on mortality that was seen in April and May in particular. So the continuous mortality investigation, CMI, have calculated that there have been about 60,000 excess deaths, more excess deaths occurring during April and May than have been seen in total year to date. There's been some pullback, if you like. Uh, I'll come on to that later. But yeah, mostly occurring in April and May. And of course, that's despite mitigation actions that have been taken, lockdowns and uh, social distancing more generally. The impact is significantly worse than the bad flu seasons that we've experienced in recent years, 2015 and, and 2018, for example. The counterpoint to that, and I just alluded to it, is that we experienced actually the lowest mortality on record in quarter three. So uh, July, August, September. Now, there's a few reasons for that. Quarter three mortality is is always the lightest. And as I've just said, we sort of expect each year to beat the last. Then, of course, we've got this continuation of the very light mortality we saw in the first quarter. And I'd argue you've also got some effect from deaths that might have occurred in in quarter three, having been accelerated into quarter two. Uh, So all of those have combined to give us then light mortality in quarter three. But really all that's done is it's it's sort of unwound about 5,000 of the excess deaths we saw in the second quarter. So we were, we were sitting at about 65,000 excess deaths in June and, and, and we're back at around 6,000 now. Of course, the, the impact in Q4 remains to be seen. So you think there's more to it than saying, well, look, we had two years of lighter lighter deaths, that means there were more sort of exposed and ill people around and, and COVID effectively mainly affected those people who, who if you like, hadn't died in the, in the lighter seasons. There's definitely more to it than that. 
I think there's certainly more to it than that. We can explore that angle mathematically just by looking at the number of deaths that might have been seen in recent flu seasons, had they been a bit more adverse. You know, a, a more typical flu season last year might have, have led to another, let's say, 20,000 deaths. But the, the numbers we've seen are a multiple of that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I certainly think there's there's more to it than that theory. And how would you see uh, the impact evolving in terms of, you know, we've seen the impact in 2020. How, how do you see the impact of, of COVID overall evolving in, in, in the short term future, i.e. 2021 through to 2025? Well, and, and indeed the final quarter of 2020. So I guess in, in short, uh, so we're speaking now in on the 7th of October, the we appear to be at the start of a of a second wave. Now, how severe that will be remains to be seen. Uh, case numbers rose quite rapidly through August and September, but I personally don't pay too much attention to case numbers. There's so many things like testing availability that distort them, and the case numbers we're seeing now are, of course, not comparable to what was seen earlier in the year. More importantly than cases, hospitalizations rose rapidly through September. As of the 1st of October, there were eight times as many daily admissions as we saw at the low point in late August. And I'm using the seven-day moving average there, so I'm not just comparing extremes. We've seen deaths follow, sadly, and daily deaths in English hospitals are now about eight times what they were at their low point. So they, they bottomed out at around five a day on average, and that's up to about 40 a day as at the start of October. I've allowed for some what we call incurred but not reported deaths there. So I've used the historic pattern of reporting delays to estimate how many there are yet to come. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty about the size and the timing of uh, any second wave that, that we experience. Part of that comes from the inherent unknowns, such as the number of people who've been infected to date and the duration of, of immunity that was conferred to them when they uh, became infected. But of course, there's also uncertainty about how we respond to this second wave. The growth of infections this time is a lot slower than we experienced earlier in the year, which, which does buy more opportunity to test various mitigation strategies. But what the government's appetite is for large-scale mitigation, like the first lockdown, is, is quite unclear. And, and I think it may well depend on, on how other countries react it's kind of in the realm of politics, really, rather than math. So I, I guess my guess is is probably no better than anybody else's. But if we look beyond the immediate impact for the next few years, we do need to consider other impacts. And, and these go in various directions. So I'll, I'll focus just now on this kind of medium term impact, as you suggested, you know, 2021 to maybe 25. I suppose in the short-ish term, we might see what's called the healthy survivor effect. And this is the reversal of the point that you made earlier about whether some of, of the very heavy mortality we saw might be explained by light mortality last year. Well, we might see quite light mortality in uh, 22, 23, 24, whereby people who would otherwise have died around then, so people who had maybe a sort of three to five year life expectancy at the start of this year, may well have died this year or, or over this coming winter. So um, that, that healthy survivor effect could see lighter mortality uh, for the next few years. We've seen that before after similar events, obviously smaller scale events, 
And we see it all the time on a, on a shorter time frame after heat waves where you get a peak of uh, higher mortality and then a, a period of lower mortality so things balance out a little. So that's one effect which could push up life expectancies counterintuitively of, of those that survive. But equally, I don't think we've seen much of this this year, despite what some parts of the press say. But we will at some point in the future start to see the effect of delays to screenings and, and other non-urgent treatments. So that concern please don't get me wrong, is, is a very real and legitimate concern. I just don't think it's showing up yet in this year's mortality, but I, I think it will over the time frame you mentioned over the next uh, sort of two to three, five years. You know, people whose cancer might have got caught at an early stage gets caught at a later stage. And instead of having a five-year life expectancy, they maybe only have a two-year life expectancy. So I, I think we'll, we've got that pain. So really positives and negatives to balance off over the next few years on balance, I am slightly pessimistic. I think life expectancy will fall compared to what we have seen in the short term. But I, I don't expect that to be a huge fall. Yeah, it seems that's a very interesting point about the, you know, the direct impact of, of COVID and the impact on mortality in the short term versus the, if you like, the collateral impacts on, on death from other sources emerging over the short term, given the measures that we're taking to, to try and reduce the COVID impact. So there's sort of two forces pulling in opposite directions. Yes, indeed. And I've, I've only focused there on the health forces. We can maybe talk later about some of the other impacts that arise from our management of the pandemic, the economic consequences, for example, changes to public health and so on. Yeah, fascinating. In terms of, we've sort of talked at the general level, where do you see the most interesting patterns emerging in terms of the impact of COVID on the different subgroups of the population? Well, this is a topic we could potentially spend a lot of time on. There is really significant variation, as, as I think is now fairly widely known, the extent to which different parts of society are impacted by both the direct and the indirect effects of COVID. So we're talking there about the virus itself and our response to it. Of course, that is true of normal mortality too. And it's really interesting and, and potentially of our long-term benefit that COVID-19 is, is really shining a light on some of the existing health inequalities we've seen in the UK. There was great work already being done on health inequalities, the marmot um, work and others, but the observed health inequalities that we're seeing around COVID are really bringing that to the fore. I'll focus on the direct effects of the virus and the disease for now, rather than, you know, the indirect effects of so the way that people in different types of job have been affected by our response to the pandemic. So when we're looking at the direct effects, it's helpful to think about both differences in exposure to the virus and differences in the consequences of that exposure. So the likelihood of getting the disease and, and in particular, a more severe uh, outcome from the disease. So your exposure can be affected by, by where you live, by the job you do, by how you live. So whether you live on your own or whether you live in a large extended family, by the, the transport available to you. We're talking about uh, how you get there. We're talking about what you do when you're there. Do you need to interact with people? Do you need that to be 
quite up close and personal. Uh, we're obviously doing this discussion uh, remotely and, and probably not finding it very difficult to do our daily roles uh, from a distance. But some people through different circumstances will obviously find that they, they simply have to have face-to-face contact, particularly people in working directly in, in health who, who are very much on the front line. Going beyond exposure, and it is worth noting that a lot of what we see in hospital admissions and within intensive care, you know, that is driven, at least in the short term, by who's been most exposed rather than necessarily who's having the most risk and most difficult outcomes once they are exposed. Looking then over a longer term outcomes, we know now that outcomes appear to be very closely related to somebody's general health. In fact, one hypothesis is that an individual's uh, COVID risk is directly proportional to their general mortality risk. It's been shown that COVID increases with age, for example, in a very similar way to how background mortality increases with age. So generally mortality increases exponentially. Your risk sort of doubles every seven or so years. COVID appears to uh, have a similar increase in risk to that background mortality. And we're also seeing COVID males are are more exposed than females. And again, with with background mortality, males have shorter life expectancies than females. And that seems to be the case uh, across various different measures of health. So when we look at uh, deprivation, when we look at BMI, when we look at ethnicity, we see a lot of similar relationships between people's COVID outcomes and their uh, general health. So, you know, if we talk about some of those, age. So age and comorbidities is an interesting question. And, and it's something that I tackled quite early on in the pandemic when a lot of people were saying, well, you know, it's, it's really only the very old and people with comorbidities that are dying. I think a really key point to be aware of is that those are not two separate points. So, when we talk about people being old and having comorbidities, well, you know, there's no surprise there. 80% of people over 80 have two or more comorbidities. Comorbidities, there's, there seems to be a lot of confusion in the press, but just because somebody has a comorbidity, it doesn't mean that they're at death's door. You know, we're, we're talking here about somebody being a bit overweight or having high blood pressure or diabetes or asthma. Uh, these are are not conditions that severely limit life and, and life expectancy. And, and many people with those comorbidities may well have had many years left to live. But we do know that it, it is older people and, and people with comorbidities that are more at risk. Um, as I mentioned earlier, males are uh, more at risk than females. Deprivation, we saw very clearly in the first wave, uh, looking at things like intensive care, admission statistics and uh, other sources. Uh, like the Open Safely study, we can see that uh, people from more deprived backgrounds are much more uh, likely to to die or require intensive care uh, or other uh, serious outcomes from this disease. And actually, so far in this second wave, that has been even more pronounced. If we look at intensive care statistics available in, in early October for admissions in September, we can see an even greater skew towards the uh, 40% uh, living in, in deprivation. And, and that must be about exposure, you know, given that we know more about how to avoid the pandemic and, and perhaps the more affluent groups are, are able to enact that protective behaviour. BMI is another interesting factor. So 
Interestingly, being a little bit overweight uh, doesn't seem to be uh, harmful, may even be slightly protective, but obesity, uh, so uh, you know, a higher BMI, uh, does appear to be quite a strong risk factor. And ethnicity, uh, we're seeing, when we look at intensive care uh, statistics, we're seeing a very disproportionate representation of people of Asian and, and Black ethnicity. Again, I, I think that must be mostly due to exposure at this stage in the pandemic, whether there is you know, anything you know, else which is, is leading to uh, greater susceptibility, I think will require uh, longer term studies and, and perhaps more international studies. It's quite hard to unpick some of these factors, ethnicity, BMI and, and, and deprivation from one another when looking within one region or, or, or one country. So, uh, yeah, lots of interesting patterns emerging, lots of study to be done. We're far from understanding the, the full uh, impact of this disease and, and how it affects different parts of society. That work's going to continue in the years and decades ahead. But really interesting uh, findings coming out so far. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating and fantastic overview there, Stuart, of the different uh, effects on the subgroups. Perhaps then it, it's no surprise or coincidence that I noticed all my uh, friends who are doctors suddenly taking up uh, a much more exercise than they usually do in the spring and summer. Probably they had a, <laughs> a view on, on how they could protect themselves by uh, getting fitter than they were. Turning to the short-term future again, what's your view on how you see COVID impacting on future age cohorts versus the current? You know, so we've got a view on if you were 70 today, how your, your mortality has been affected. But how are we changing our assumptions about what mortality, say, a seven, the 70-year-old of the future will be experienced as a result of the pandemic? So it's a really good question. And um not one that I have all the answers to by by any stretch. There's lots of work going on across the insurance industry and elsewhere to try and quantify some of these factors. But there's a lot of, of relevant factors in there. I think I'll start with the most negative, or at least the potentially most negative, which is the long-term effects of COVID. So what's being sort of colloquially known as as long COVID. So we're seeing people both people who did suffer quite acute uh, short-term effects and required hospitalization or, or required a couple of days in bed, but also some of those who did not and, uh, you know, had relatively benign uh, short-term effects, uh, even asymptomatic. Um, we're seeing people suffering uh, with uh, lethargy, with uh, breathlessness and, and various other complaints. And, and we do know that viruses can have uh, long-term detrimental effects on health. And at the moment, we simply don't know with a virus that's been around for less than a year what the long-term effects of that might be. There were adverse effects, uh, primarily cardiovascular, arising from Spanish flu uh, years and decades after the the acute wave. So the, the long-term effects of COVID are, are very much unknown. And that's why I'm very firmly against herd immunity, let the young get it type strategies, because we just don't know what risks we're exposing those people to and be a reckless uh, a way to manage the pandemic, in, in my view. Uh, away from that uh, most negative uh, impact, there's various other things that will surely change as a result of, of what we're going through. Call out uh, future management of flu seasons. Uh, we've always suffered hard from the flu in this country, maybe 30,000 deaths in a flu season, uh, excess winter mortality. 
it's hard to imagine that we will just throw out everything we've learned about managing a viral pandemic uh, in future flu seasons. And I'm not suggesting that we'll we'll have a lockdown every winter, but um, masks, hand washing when visiting care homes, you know, these general learning points around social distancing and about creating a, a barrier to viral transmission are surely things that we will continue with. And, you know, an optimist might say that we'll we'll manage our flu seasons better in the years ahead. Smoking cessation, you've already alluded to uh, general uh, health awareness and, and people taking more exercise. You know, this could really be a wake up call for a generation. And, and we may well find that there's considerably more healthy behavior adopted by younger generations in the years to come. You know, there's a generational memory to these things. And, you know, this the experience that we're having will, will drastically change people's worldview. Less use of public transport, uh, perhaps economic consequences we've we've not really touched on. But of course, the measures that we've taken to uh, manage the pandemic are having very severe uh, economic consequences. And, and that may well talk to our ability to fund health and social care in the years ahead. We've seen in the past that austerity been correlated with uh, a slowing down in, in life expectancy improvements. Perhaps we might see that continue or, or even worsen. But on the other hand, uh, prioritisation may change. So after everything we've been through, we may finally start to see more investment in social care. We, we may find that there is a greater willingness among the population to pay more tax uh, and uh, have more investment in, in the NHS and, and in preventative cares, you know, so there's, there's no obvious, you can't categorically say that the likely economic harm that we'll see in, in the years ahead will necessarily lead to worse provision of, of health and social care. So a lot of medium and long term factors there that will interplay in, in very interesting ways. No, fascinating, Stuart. And I, I can see that in all these areas, there there are things pulling the potential outcomes in different directions. And I think uh, that gives someone like yourself a challenge to work out for for, for your institution which, which way things are going to go. So I'd uh, finally like to wrap up with your views on how the, the pandemic is impacting on both pricing of financial products, be they life or pensions, and or the financial position of groups and uh, financial institutions that uh, write these sort of products? Yeah, I'll, I'll be relatively brief on these, I think. I think with pricing of uh, life and pension products, it's it's probably quite early to say. We've, we've talked already about the uh, different effects pulling in, in different directions. So, you know, that impact on, on mortality and longevity pricing still being worked through. I, I don't see major pricing impacts there in the short term. Of course, we're talking there, if you like, about a, an organization's manufacture cost of a product. Probably worth thinking about demand too. We might find that consumers place more value on insurance products, having lived through a, an extreme event. As for the institutions themselves, What's really interesting is actually the sorts of institutions you mentioned, which are the very natural ones to think about, and the ones who've been spending their time and resources over the years modelling and pandemics and worrying about them, they're really not the institutions that have been most affected to date. You know, it feels like, you know, other industries have, have had far more uh, severe consequences. Uh, airlines, for example, cinema chains we've, we've seen closing, the hospitality sector. Within the financial sector, it feels like the, the bigger impacts have actually been financial. 
you know what what started as a mortality crisis very turned very quickly turned into an economic one and actually the impact on equity and credit markets have have swamped the direct impact of, of pandemic for for those sorts of institutions the mortality impact itself has been pretty comparable to what they would have had in their models so whether there are long-term consequences, I think, remains to be seen, but um, it doesn't seem to threaten the solvency of those institutions in the short term. No, fascinating. And certainly, I think, uh, specifically the point you made about the direct demographic impact of a pandemic risk being dwarfed by the collateral impact on investments and other factors. And, you know, we've seen also a huge impact on interest rates effectively as well. I think definitely one for the agenda of chief risk officers looking to say, well, you know, building up their risk models of the impact of pandemics in the future. Yeah, understanding how those different risk factors can interplay and, and the correlations between different risks. I think that understanding has come on a long way in the last six months and doubtless there'll be a lot more thought going into those decisions in the future. Fantastic. Well, uh, really appreciate your time, Stuart, and I'm delighted to have heard your views on the impact of COVID on financial institutions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. This broadcast has been brought to you by the Longevity Forum as part of Longevity Week 2020. We are very grateful to our sponsors, Juvenescence, Hill Dickinson, and Burnbray. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.